0: yeah Yeah. 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 welcome to this week's into the wilderness podcast it is out a day late but if you're listening in the future then we're perfectly on time we had uh,
1: kind of a good excuse. We didn't have time to do it at the start of the week, and then we were working in Sky, and we were really busy.
0: It would have been out on time, but the weather meant that basically, uh, yeah, basically our Sky trip had to be moved to the days that would have been podcast edit- editing and releasing the podcast. And uh, so, yeah, but I mean, that's the West Coast of Scotland. You can't, you can't really... No, you've got to
1: take your opportunity when it comes. Yeah. And we took it. You're going to be hearing from a chap called Matt Gibson. He is a hunter, teacher, guide, cameraman, jack-of-all-trades, all-round good guy. He was a long-running cameraman for Jim Shockey, who most of you will have heard of and who has been on this podcast before, uh, before he went on and did what he is doing now, uh, which uh, amongst other things is running the Educated Hunter podcast and Ultimate OE with his partner in crime, Curran Ireland, who's also been a guest on this podcast. So it's a really great chat about his kind of life story
0: and some of his adventures. Yeah. It's uh it's it's a great show. I've just just finished re-listening to it again and uh I really enjoy listening it, it, it to it. It entertained again. you the second time it, around. It did, yeah. It's it's about an hour and a half. So lots of entertainment. Exciting news for us is we're heading to the States in a week. We are. In uh so basically if you It's going to be February the 3rd we arrive in Seattle. Yes, so we're going to be in Seattle for a few days and
1: then we're going to be somewhere in and around Bozeman in Montana for the rest of our trip um, towards the end of the month.
0: This is in 2019, so if you're listening to this podcast (laughs) in a year's time, we might not be heading to uh, uh, Seattle at that time, but if you are about... And uh, we know that we have quite a number of listeners in uh, in the United States. If you are about, if you're in Montana or you're in Seattle or near Seattle or something like that, then give us a shout, and uh, we'll endeavour to meet up with whoever is about. Yeah, and we are going to hopefully grab a whole bunch of great podcasts.
1: With interesting people. while we are over there, and if you have any suggestions of people who you know are in those areas, then do let us know. Shoot us an email, send us a message on social media, and we will see if we can fit them into the schedule and grab a podcast with them.
0: That'll be yeah, it'll be really cool. We'll kind of just go where it takes us. You know, if if there's interesting people, then we'll just we'll go and do it. We're pretty free. Uh, There's a few key things we've got to go and do, but uh, yeah, we're pretty flexible. And anyone has a suggestion
1: for a good gym in Bozeman that would be good Cause Mo- like most people, some most people
0: are just going to be saying the mountains
1: the mountains, I know but it, I think the mountains are full of snow oh, that's a good point actually, At I think a lot of snow so I don't know if we'll be able to go Crunch, up to the mountains cross. oh yeah I'd be game for some yeah. skiing you've done some, I yeah. haven't yeah, yeah. we'll see, we'll see what happens while we're there, but I'm very excited first trip to North America so
0: mm-hmm. I just notice you've got a little list. Uh, just a couple yeah. of things. I wasn't
1: going to make this all that long an intro, but we will be. We are also going to South Africa and Southern Africa a little bit later in the year. One thing that we have mentioned before, but I think I'm going to try and kick off and start running next week is the raffle to raise money for uh, pangolin conservation. Primarily we're trying to raise money for camera traps, which is what we've been told by the guys on the ground there that they could really do with. We have a few items here already uh, which we can get up and and start raffling, but if anyone who's listening to the podcast has anything they'd like to give to us to raffle, to raise money, to buy Camera traps, then get in touch with the show.
0: It will be all the details will be on our website. We're launching that next week. Uh, the aim is the initial round of money we want to raise is about two thousand uh, pounds for the camera traps, and then also getting them over there as well. Uh, which you can't forget that part because it's expensive to get it across there. And uh, I think. Uh, we we want to carry on raising money, so that's not our final target. So I think that we'll probably find our final target over the, the course of the year is probably going to be closer to £10,000 because our our goal is to get satellite tag systems for them and we're still in the process of actually costing uh, decent ones that will work with them on the pangolins on the ground. So we're in the process of speaking to experts and they can be pretty expensive. So we'll, we'll set our, our goal high. And then if See we, where we end up. And if we end up somewhere in between, that's good. Most illegally trafficked animal in the world. Mammal. Oh, is it not? No, it's What's the most it? trafficked mammal. mammal. Oh, in the I world. wonder what
1: the most trafficked animal is.
0: Not sure. I guess. I guess persecuted would probably be sharks or something. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you corrected me. Yeah. On that.
1: Yeah. It might be the same thing. Good check. What? No. It might. It might be the most. Oh, it, might, in, yeah, in yeah, total.
0: it might. It might be. But I just know that you know it's I know that it is the most trafficked mammal.
1: Uh, but we will be spending some time with them on the ground, hopefully, while we're there, so we'll be able to share some pictures and more information, grab some interviews yep. and some podcasts.
0: So the idea is that we'll raise the money before we go out, so we can actually take the the equipment with us, because... Um, if anyone has spent any time in Africa, or in fact even fact it doesn't even need to be Africa, if you just sent any parcel across even the u k you know that they try and damage them <laughs> yeah. uh or they go missing in fact, we were talking about in the last show, and since the last show, we ordered uh well basically two thousand pounds worth of stuff from down south in England, and it was uh we got a new drone and then it was a piece of camera equipment. They managed to rip open the box, and it was all. Most of the gear was almost. Hanged. I'm surprised nothing was missing, and all that was was from the middle of England to the top of Scotland. And it wasn't. It wasn't the company that sent it's problem. It got destroyed during during transit, and it just shows you how bad. Like they abused the stuff so badly. Uh, so really... we're going to hopefully avoid that by taking it over. with Yeah. You. So we're going to have a case and carry it ourselves, and then it'll be down to us and the. Uh,
1: so our target in terms of time frame is uh middle of April because yep. that's when we're heading over. So it's not all that long but we'll we'll kick it off next week.
0: We managed with the chimpanzees. So yes we did. Yeah.
1: Um and the last thing was just to give you a little taster of what's happening. In 2 weeks time we have a super long podcast with Sam Thompson about quite a variety of topics kind of centred around Deer. People will remember him. We had a lot of very positive uh, feedback from the podcast that we did at, at the very beginning of 2018. So we're bringing you another podcast from him kind of at the beginning of 2019.
0: Yeah, that'll be just at the start of when we're in the United States. It will be, yeah. So that'll be really cool.
1: And other than that, that was all I had on my list today
0: to mention to people.
1: Um, apart from the usual competition, that we run on the podcast every two weeks and i have I've, I'm, a, I'm a step ahead today because normally we haven't done this but the post is already up on facebook it is to win the latest edition of the hornady reloading manual there is a picture of uh, rosie with the reloading with rosie series she's holding the latest manual and all we are asking you to do is tag hunting buddy below and that's it And we will pick the winner at random
0: in two weeks time I was going to say, if you've got any suggestions of things that you think would be good in the raffle, i.e. you think uh, there's a picture that you particularly like that you've seen of us put up that maybe we could get printed and put in the raffle. Uh, No, it's not a raffle. It's an auction. We're doing an auction.
1: Well, I'm not... Yeah, no, so it will be an auction. auction. I haven't quite worked out how we're going to do that yet. There must be a way to auction...
0: I'm sure we can yeah well I'm sure we can manage uh, an auction somehow on Facebook or otherwise yeah. Uh, but yeah that if there is something that you think you know uh, it would be really cool if you could get one of these on then we'll try our best to do that and accommodate
1: yeah, I was just trying to think what's in the bag. It's been a while since I looked at it. We've been collecting a few things over the last six months. Yeah, we have been p- putting um, so things aside. We'll we'll certainly, I think we'll, we'll certainly manage to put in a, a volume two of Modern Huntsman. Yeah, we'll be able to do that. We've got you a whole bunch of stuff from
0: Gerber. We'll, we'll even, You know what we could even do? And I'm pretty sure we can do this. We could probably run two auctions in a way. One in the UK, and because we are going to the US, maybe one in the US as well. And leave
1: some stuff with Tyler to post up.
0: Potentially, potentially. Maybe. you'll find out next week but Uh, especially with them on Huntsman mm -hmm. we could do do two Two.
1: excellent well uh, that is it I hope that you enjoy this awesome conversation with Matt Gibson Matt welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast you are the second half of the tag team, which is the Educate Hunter, of which we've had Curran on before, and our listeners uh, might remember him. If they don't, they can go back and listen to that, which I recorded with Curran in New Zealand, your home country. How, are you, how yes, have you? How have you been over the, the Christmas uh, and New Year period? Has it been a relaxed one for you, or has it been a busy one?
2: <laughs> well, uh, technically it should have been relaxed, but my partner, she... She's a full noise holidayer, so relax is a, is a loose way to put it, and I'm born on Christmas Day too, so there's a birthday party <laughs> just in there as well, so we, uh yeah, it was good. We're over here in Canada, so we spent Christmas in Salmon Arm with a good friend of mine, um, Michael and his wife, Sarah, and their young son, Eric, in Salmon Arm, and they, they're actually poultry farmers um, out there, so got to check out his new poultry unit, but... Yeah, did Christmas and then birthday. We went snowmobiling up in the mountains for the day, which was awesome. And then we did two days skiing in Revelstoke, three days skiing in Nelson, New Year's Eve, and then I drove back. I think it was seven and a half or eight hours of winter driving back to Vancouver to start working again on the second. So, yes, some time off, but not exactly what I describe as relaxing.
1: In the in big countries like the US or Australia these long distance journeys people just sort of ra- rattle them off like like it's nothing but if someone had to drive from the north of scotland to the south of england it would be quite a big deal but people over there just seem to do these eight ten hour drives on a fairly regular basis
2: yeah it's it's a fascinating thing to be honest I 'cause because i mean same thing in new zealand right yeah. if you'd you know, three, three and a half hours was considered to be the, the limit of any drive in any direction. That was sort of your striking distance to go away for the weekend. And then once I got over here, you know, we started doing sort of 25, 30 hour drives to get from A to B. Um, that sort of puts everything back into perspective. Like we used to routinely drive, um, more from Vancouver Island across to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and that's sort of 20 plus hours. And then, routinely drive from here all the way up to Whitehorse, which is again probably pushing closer to the 30 hour mark and it's not like they do it over a few days you just get in a truck and drive and just tag team so um it puts things in perspective it does help the fuels a bit cheaper over there it does help and to be honest their roads are, are pretty good i mean going back to new zealand you know suddenly oh yeah no five hour drive no worries but when we drive our roads in New Zealand, there's a lot more driving involved. Um, whereas over here, you can get on a highway and put on the cruise control and and give it death in a straight line for long periods of time and cover it a lot of distance. Whereas um, in New Zealand, it's a little bit more uh, <laughs> a little bit more maintenance involved on cornering and things like that.
1: Well, if you're unless you get stuck in traffic, there isn't thirty hours of driving to be done in the UK because you can drive wherever <laughs> you like within probably about twelve.
0: Yeah, I think the longest I've ever done is fourteen hours, and that was from here to Plymouth, and that is the bottom of the country, yeah, basically. Probably with traffic as yeah. well.
2: Yeah, yeah. I remember the first real big punch I did was a, uh, with a guide outfitter. His name's Joel Wilkinson. He uh, runs an outfit in um, out of Watson Lake up in the Yukon, and he used to drive <clears throat> from Alberta up back home again. And I hitched a hitch to lift with him once back up to Watson Lake, which is. Oh, three and a half, four hours short of Whitehorse and just over the BC-Yukon border. And he introduced me to spits, which are the um, uh, sunflower seeds, flavoured sunflower seeds. Okay. And we rem- remember <laughs> he said, oh, these are the best thing. These are the only thing that keep you awake because you put an empty Starbucks or Tim Hortons it would have been in Canada cup in the cup holder and you put a handful of these things in your mouth and you have to shuck them or shell them with your teeth and then you sort of stick the shells on one side and then the and then the nut on the other side and then every so often you reach forward and you've got to spit the shell into the cup and if you're actively doing that it's really hard to go to sleep. So we decided that we are going to have a competition to see who could fill up an extra large Starbucks cup um, first with shucked, um, <laughs> shucked sunflower seeds. And by the end of it, I had blisters on the tip of my tongue from working the the seeds and the the dill pickle flavoring sort of started irritating it and getting all nasty. So I ended up with a horrible ulcer on the end of my tongue as a result. But yeah, that was my first experience of a long distance drive.
1: That is the most ridiculous competition I've ever heard in my life. Let's try and shut (laughs) seeds with our mouth and fill up a cup. I mean, does it taste good if you're not doing it in excessive quantity? It's not something I've ever done. I mean... The sunflower seeds you feed to the birds, yeah, but they're here.
2: flavored, you Yeah,
1: Well, that's what I'm interested about. Is it? I mean, is it good? Is it tasty?
2: Yeah, they're good. They're, they're called spits here because you have to spit out the shell no matter how you do it. Um, and I actually, when I first started wrangling um, in North America, a lot of the guides and a lot of guides still do chewed tobacco, mm-hmm. which um, I tried it once and threw up over the side of my horse and it wasn't <coughs> a pretty thing, but um. A big white horse, too. It wasn't good. Um, so I, it wasn't for me. So I quickly figured out that if I took a couple of big um, two-pound bags of spits, so I could stick one of those in my saddlebag and sort of reach back and grab a handful of those and sort of chill on them as you're riding along. And, of course, when you're riding through the mountains, you can just spit them off to one side. As mm. No one's going to get offended. It's the things that you know on Ace Ventura when he's on the plane and he like chews up those nuts and spits them out on the on the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on the handle. It's next been to that a long, and, like, a lot totally of years since I've
1: seen that, but <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's worth a rewatch. I watch it every every so often. It's timeless.
1: So, what does January look like for you? Because I know our other American friends or folks who are maybe not from America, but certainly live there january start of feb is just show season and they're not at home they're basically going around all the shows and it's just a manic four or five weeks have you got yourself into that
2: yeah i've been doing that for um a while now so in a previous life when i was guiding it was part of my life and then when i got into the filming stuff it was part of my life and now with ultimate oe and what i do with Curran, it's still part of my life so Um, January is basically show month so you've got Safari Club which is in Reno this year it's shifted back there from Vegas Um, you've got the Wild Sheep show you've got Dallas Safari Club um, and probably a whole bunch of other ones that I'm not remembering but yeah it is very busy and very busy for our clients so Curran and I will be in Reno next week and for us it's a we don't have a booth we're not actively selling anything it's just a really good opportunity to get around all of our employers um say day, shake their hands and figure out what they need for for staff for the upcoming season so um, it is a very busy time um at the start and this year because it's early we're actually doing the show and then we get straight back on a plane and fly directly to New Zealand where I pick up we've got uh, another full roster of young men and women from New Zealand who are coming over to Canada to work in the outfitting industry so our training starts um, directly after that show so that'll take us right through to the end of January so yeah busy. We'll, we'll touch
1: on that a bit to ex- explain it again for, for people who didn't hear Curran's uh, podcast what it is that your, your business and training is but for in, in terms of shows to give people an idea who have never been like we've never been to the shows and we were thinking about doing it this year, but there are a lot of shows and there's a lot of differences between them. For people who are thinking of maybe going over, give us a flavor of what the difference is between these shows and which ones you would suggest going, because most people won't be able to go to all of them, but would maybe like to go to at least one.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So start with Safari Club International. That's the one that we're going to, um, and it tends to be the biggest um, hunting show Uh, the outfit is there. I I forget how many exhibitors, but it's in the thousands. Like it's a big show. Um, and it's very, I guess, hunting safari, um, orientated. It's probably got the biggest, uh, range of different outfitters from around the world. And a lot of the, all of the really high end outfits will be there. Um, it's very similar in a lot of ways to Dallas Safari Club. Dallas is a little smaller, a little more intimate, um, So that is similar to Dallas Safari Club. So if you can only make it to one of those, then it's probably not worth going to both. There's a lot of people who go and exhibit at both. Um, And then you've got the SHOT Show, which tends to be in Vegas. I think it is again this year, which tends to be more of an industry um, equipment, firearms type deal. And that's huge. Uh, There are... That is massive. Yeah, there's not as many hunting outfitters who exhibit there. It tends to be more of the the equipment and industry and firearms and everything that goes in and around shooting and hunting. Uh, it's a it's an awesome show to go to, particularly if you're a bit of a gear nut. Hmm. Um, then you've got a bunch of different shows. You've got the the sheep show, so the wild sheep show. That's always um, appealed to, to be, me. the sheep show. Yeah, it's cool. It's a it's definitely a um, more of a I don't know how to describe it certainly a more of a free-range mountain hunting feel mm-hmm. um, I really like that show um, I would go to that show probably over a lot of the other ones um, but we it's just not as big and we don't get as much coverage in terms of what we need to achieve you know it just doesn't have all our outfitters aren't there at the same time so I would love to go to that show more often and it's yeah, it's got a great feel. They do packing competitions and um, a whole lot of that kind of stuff too, which is certainly more grassroots outfitting type show. Mm. Um, really enjoy that one. And then there's obviously a, a bunch of other ones. There's the ATA show. There's the um, the elk show. There's uh, the big one they have in Harrisburg. Um, that's a big show. That's like – I think it's like 10 days. It's huge. Oh, wow. And a lot of outfitters there too, but um, – yeah, it tends to be more, again, sort of a um, blue-collar type show would be the best way to describe it, I think. i um, hopefully not offending anyone out there. Sorry <laughs> <if I am. laughs> we don't worry too much um, about offending people. <laughs> but anyway, there's there's plenty of options. Happy to help, too, if anyone wants a bit of advice on which show to go to, uh, um, whether it's a good thing or not. I've certainly been to a few over the years. Are there any Happy big shows out. in uh, New Zealand? Uh, there's two hunting shows now um there's another one it's actually called the shot show which started last year in auckland um so Curran, we do actually exhibit at that one so um, Curran was there last year i was over here in north america so i haven't actually been to that one yet but apparently it's got scope to become quite big just because it's up close to our main population center you got auckland and hamilton and Tauranga right there so got a good feed of people um and then we have what's called the Seeker Show, which is in Taupo. That's been gone for probably fifteen years. And that's sort of slowly growing in popularity. And um so yeah, there's another hunting show there that is available to Kiwis. How does a young Kiwi
1: end up in the States? And what was your <laughs> what was your progression? Because I know so we first, to give people a bit of background, we you first i think you contacted me because we had said that we were going to new zealand to go and film and you contacted me and said well hey hey man uh if you're going to new zealand it would be cool if you could hook up with my business partner kuran um i'm sure i'd be able to take a couple of days out to to take you hunting and luckily i was able to take him up uh, well take you up on his offer for that and i had an absolute blast and and kuran's a a proper gent, and he had only just had a he'd only just had a baby a week before, and he, I don't know how the hell he managed to get permission to drive hours away from where he lives to go and take me hunting for a couple of days, but he did. So he must have an angel as a wife as well, uh, who Jeez. I who, who I did meet, and she made dinner for us that one night. Um, so it was great to meet him and his family. Uh, but how did what has your career progression been to um, the educated hunter? Which we'll we'll get to, an, an ultimate OE. Because that's not where you started. The first of your career that I know of is is you as a as a cameraman. But I don't know if there was anything before that.
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting one. It's <clears throat> I mean depends how detailed you want to get, but loosely speaking, um, I got through the end of university, and I was on a track to do a masters in wildlife management. And as you know, you've been to New Zealand. You sort of have a general idea of. New Zealand's version of wildlife management and it nearly never really washed with me, it was always a search and destroy everything with warm blood as a pest Um, and the word management I found didn't really apply, it was more um, pest control Um, so I I naturally butted heads with a number of the the lecturers there and I got to the point where I'd finished my um, bachelor's degree and I was posturing to do my masters and I just sort of had a I had a confrontation with one of my lecturers, um, who I told had a she had a overinflated sense of self worth, which went down like a burning orphanage, <laughs> and sort of <laughs> butted heads. Um, and at that point, it, it suddenly occurred to me that maybe you know that trajectory and going to work for Doc wasn't right for me. Um, Doc being your so, department of conservation, exactly. Yeah. So at that point I sort of very strongly felt that I wanted to make a difference within the sort of hunting and and game management and how our animals are managed at that point. This is very early 20s, is it? Yeah, early 20s. I would have been, at that stage, would have been 20, um, pushing 21. Um, But, you know, I felt very strongly. But at that point, after a conversation with my old man, didn't really feel like I had the experience to make any of the... Difference, well, the changes that I that I wanted to be involved in, so started looking around for other things. And the outfitting industry in New Zealand, particularly at that time, was relatively covert. Nobody, well, I certainly didn't wasn't aware of that you could take people hunting and get paid to do it. And when I figured that out, um, that was a a big uh, move for me, uh, a, a big revelation. So I proceeded to email and call every outfitter in New Zealand. Um, until somebody picked up the phone. I managed to um, get a meeting with a guy called Mike Freeman who used to own Kiwi Safaris. So I got a meeting with him and he was nice enough to give me a shot. And from there I did basically three years worth of guiding in New Zealand. Um, But it was in my first year uh, at the end of the season I'd sort of done my apprenticeship our head guide at the time, head guide at the time, Colin Rainin said, "Look, we've got these guys coming over from from Canada. He's bringing a camera crew. Um, I can't pay you, but I need you know if you're keen, it might be good people to meet um, if you want to carry a backpack." So at that point, I didn't have anything else to do. I was, just to, I was just planning on trapping possums to kill a bit of time. So I stayed and hung out, and it turns out that that guy was Jim Shockey he came over with his wife Louise and his son Brandlin um, was the cameraman, so was with them for a period of time. Uh, me and Brandlin have subsequently become very, very good friends. Uh, I was the best man at his wedding, uh, so from there uh, they left and actually came back to New Zealand. By well, that stage, I've been I was up in the North Island and my boss called me and said, "Do you think you can find a samba for Jim?" So Samba deer are, for those who don't know, originally from Bangladesh, I believe. Uh, They're a big bodied deer. Um, They live primarily in the swamps. They're very cunning, very furtive. One of the only deer that are um, naturally nocturnal, so they are very hard to hunt. So went from zero guiding experience to actually sort of semi-outfitting a hunt in the North Island for Jim Shockey and his family. That's not a bad that progression, experience, eh? No. And it, to be honest, I didn't really know what I was doing and I learned a lot. And um, I remember distinctly thinking at the end of that hunt, uh, under no circumstances do I ever want to be a cameraman. That looks like the worst <laughs> job ever. Um, and at the end of that, Jim said to me, look, if you ever in Canada, look me up. So fast forward a few years I did um, a season guiding for barrenland caribou in northern Quebec Um, so that was a uh, I like to describe it as my best worst experience of my whole life Um, I did a season wrangling uh, in northern BC and at the end of that season I actually picked up the phone and said hey Jim I'm in Canada how about give me a job so that's how I ended up picking up a camera for the first time that's a fairly long wind winded explanation and there's (laughs) a few details I've left out I
1: I, I just want to I want to pause there before we start talking about your, your your career as a cameraman the your guiding progression I mean it's such a huge amount of experience that you gained in actually a relatively short period of time tell me a little bit about your the first experiences in the states and uh, compared to what you had been doing in New Zealand because I'm assuming what you that most of the guiding you had been doing in New Zealand was tar shami and red deer I would guess
2: yeah um it was certainly different they they took me on you know compared to a lot of guys who hunt in New Zealand when I first started guiding I didn't actually have a lot of hunting experience I had a, a very niche core um sort of expertise of hunting red deer in the bush and the Tarruas where I grew up. Uh, but the tar and the chamois and the mountain hunting was all new to me. And then the estate-type hunting was new to me as well. So they took me on based on the fact that I could hold a conversation. Um, I remember Colin telling me one day that he can teach anyone how to hunt, it's, but he can't teach them how to have a personality. With, <laughs> in the guiding probably true, world, actually. Yeah, in the guiding world, it, it actually counts for a lot. More than people realise that it's a, you know, it's it's customer service in a lot of ways, just in a really cool setting. Um, so if you can't can't handle and deal with your clients, then it's um, and if they're not having a good time, then you're not really doing your job. Um, the best way to, you know, one of my outfitters here in North America describes it as like anyone can guide when the hunting's good, and if you go out and shoot a big stone sheep on day three, everybody's happy, that's easy. Uh, The measure of a good guide is after a 21-day sheep hunt where the guy's invested $40,000 US, doesn't harvest a trophy, you've had your ass kicked day after day after day, at the end of that 21 days if he turns around and says, I want to rebook and I want the same guide, that is you know and that happens even to the best guides in the world right so if you can as a guide get through the end of that 21 days and manage and deliver um for that period of time and then have a guy wanting to come back with you to hunt again that's a measure of a good guide not the number of trophies you get or the size of the trophies you get um that to me is is where it goes so yeah for me it was I was relatively inexperienced but I learned a lot quickly in that environment I had a a number of really great mentors within Kiwi Safaris Um, and then in my first year as I said I went over and and guided in northern Quebec which was completely different a massive eye-opener for me Um, I went over there with the promise of just working for tips um, and ended up You know, 75 days out on the tundra um, learning and really honing my people management skills. So back in those days, I I worked for a company called Safari Nordique, which was, it had just gone public. It was actually an outfitting um, company that had gone public. Wow. And I may be slightly misquoting the numbers, but in those days they took, I think it was 1,200 clients in a season.
1: So they were, one way or the other, they were a big operation.
2: They were huge, yeah. So 1,200 clients in the season and each of those guys had two caribou tags and their marketing was they would guarantee you one mature bull, um, keyword being mature, or they would let you come back for the following year for half price. So logistically speaking in the, you know, The length of the season it's a relatively short window they would have a lot of camps open full with guys and the caribou would migrate down but they don't sort of come down in a straight line they sort of do circles so they come down and then go up and then come down and do up so at any one time there might be one or two maybe three camps that actually had caribou in them so what they would do is their clients would arrive and they would tell everybody they were going to the camp that was full of caribou They would fly them out there, they would get off the plane all excited, and as a guide you knew there wasn't a caribou within 300 miles in any direction. So they would get off the plane and it was all three-on-one guiding, so you'd have three clients who were looking to shoot six animals in five days, and you had to babysit them for three days. So first day they'd be excited, second day they'd be a bit miffed, third day they'd be irately angry once they figured out that there were no caribou there, Um, and then on day before the plane would turn up they would pick up the guys that had been there for three days fly them to where the caribou air were they would tag out in a day and then you would get three more guys who were all excited and thought they were going to shoot caribou um, that were already there so you got pretty good as a 21 year old kid I was having you know I was three days at a time with three guys who Basically, every time you put them on the plane, they were flat-out angry, and I was working for tips, so I wasn't getting paid, and I wasn't getting any tip money because I weren't getting a chance to shoot any caribou. So that sounds like a shit deal. I, did, I Literally, for two months, and I had a contiki, like a bus tour booked around Europe that I paid for, but I had no spending money, like my bank account was zero-zero, so towards the end of the season I was thinking I'm going to have to cancel my trip I haven't made any money this is horrible and every day you'd just be getting yelled at um, futru- fortuitively speaking well luckily at the end of the season I uh, we were the only camp with caribou so for about a 12 day period um, I worked my ass off all the other guides were French Canadian guides and guys from Newfoundland they all had quads I didn't have one. I had a pack frame, which <laughs> meant that I could hunt areas that they couldn't get the quad into. So I just put my head down and I actually ended up... At the end of that season, I mean, I at the very first week, I think I got four caribou and then I had nothing for the entire season. Then the last 10 days, my end tally for the whole season was 58 caribou. Wow. You so, must have hunted like a um,
1: machine in that last 12 days.
2: Yeah, all I was doing was going from client picking up butchering and carrying back to the meat shack um from dawn to dusk so went like a machine ended up making really good tip money because i was like i get my guys tagged out and i was poaching clients like i look back on it and think man i would have punched me in the face but i was at that point (laughs) just so desperate to get it done and i was so fed up with the guys that i was working with they weren't um in a lot of cases great people so I just put my head down and bum up and just ripped into it. So learnt a lot about dealing with people over that experience. And as I said, best, worst spe- experience of my life. Looking back on it now, it was awesome. Helps but, build uh, build who you are, I suppose, something like that. Yeah, especially for a kid that age. Um, and then, you know, and it sort of opened my eyes to what was available in North America. Like it was a completely different experience. Actually, <laughs> funny story, that first... Season that I was well, that first time I was in Quebec. My first client was a guy called Michael Waddell. Oh, you're kidding! um And I didn't know who he was, yeah. so turned up with a camera crew. And of course, the guys in the camp were like, "Oh, yeah, here's a camera crew." So I remember I distinctly remember working walking out onto the onto the tundra for the first day, and uh, Michael Waddell turned around to me on camera and said, "Oh, how long have you been hunting caribou?" And I looked at my watch and sort of said, fifteen minutes." <coughs> And uh, they all laughed and thought it was funny. <laughs> we went out and we killed three with a bow. And uh, at the end of the day, it became pretty obvious that I'd never actually seen a caribou, like period, never <laughs> seen one before. We <laughs> wow. Killed this thing with a big, killed this thing with a bow. Was the first caribou I'd ever seen. Um, they all thought that was pretty funny. And then, of course, our caribou dried up for the whole season. So it was a um, sort of a baptism of fire. But yeah, once I'd done that. I, uh, when I got back to New Zealand, I did another um, season's guiding in New Zealand. And one of the guides had just come back from northern British Columbia. And he had wrangled for an outfit up here. And when I saw his photos, I was done. That was, I was like, man, that's me next time. When when
1: you say wrangling, just explain that to people so that everyone can understand. Because I I don't know what, I don't know what. Picture most people would have <laughs> in their head when you say wrangling, probably just cowboying, I think.
0: Yeah, probably.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, wrangler is a, is a term that gets sort of modified for a, whatever industry it's in, right? So, in a hunting sense, a wrangler, the best description of it is assistant to the guide. um It's traditionally been used as a, an apprenticeship uh position in North America to become a, a horseback hunting guide and the term wrangler actually comes from your primary job in the morning is to get up before everybody else in the dark and go and find the horses and wrangle them or round them up and bring them in to be saddled and used for the day. So that's where the term wrangler comes from and it's, you know, your bottom of the ladder starting position in a um, Canadian or American horse-based outfit. So it'd be
1: like a hill gilly here in Scotland.
2: Exactly, Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So Gilly is probably the closest thing you'd have there in, in Scotland, is uh, someone who's looking after the ponies and and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, but you are literally a, you're there to facilitate the hunt in any way you can. In pre-season, you're cutting trail, building cabins, you know, scouting for animals, all that kind of stuff before the hunting gets underway. So yeah, it's just. Uh, It's an awesome job. Like, (laughs) it may be bottom of the ladder, but it's by far one of the best jobs in the world, I think.
1: So you went back and you went to BC after going home to New Zealand and became a Wrangler?
2: Yep. So I did another New Zealand hunting season. So thankfully our seasons oppose each other. So um, you can basically fill up your whole year with hunting if you sort of chop it in with North America. So... Came back, worked for an outfit in northern BC as a Wrangler, um, and after a season of that sort of started jumping my way into the the guiding side of things in North America as well. Uh, So I did two seasons in northern BC, which sort of dovetailed into starting with Shockey. And once I started with Shockey, I was basically full-on filming. So, but how do you make from... that
1: jump because you're 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 a guide and or and a wrangler and now suddenly you've got a camera in your hand and that's I mean it, there there's a <laughs> the, the tech the technical knowledge is a little different as you know as we both know <laughs>
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, my style of filming might be slightly more agricultural to yours, I think, boys, but um <laughs> I like that word the- agricultural.
1: <laughs> he says that, but I've seen I you're 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 talking yourself down because uh, you're responsible for some of the most epic footage in Jim's library that I've seen,
2: so Well, I appreciate you saying that, but uh yeah. Basically, I'll quote Jim on this one. He would get asked that question a lot, particularly when people met me. Um <laughs> and for the period where I filmed with Jim, he would say it was it's a lot easier to to take a hunter and teach him how to film than it is to take somebody who is a you know say a film school graduate and teach them how to hunt yeah very true um, and when I first came on with Jim, he had already ticked off you know a lot of his um, species on the list I guess you'd, if you if you're gonna break it down. And I sort of came on at a time where he was doing some uh, of the less pleasant hunts. So he needed somebody that could stick with him for a month at a time in some pretty trying conditions. So he was happy to mentor me and teach me and and put up with my shitty filming um, until I got to a point where I was actually producing some decent stuff. Yeah, And just to sort of put some content text around it too uh, in the background when all this guiding and hunting's going on me and Jim's son became very very good friends and Brandlin, I don't know if you've had a chance to meet him but he's a very talented though. creative guy um, and just through my relationship with him and when I started filming with Jim the whole concept of the professionals came about when Brandlin and I were living in Kelowna over the winter and basically Brandon was working at a furniture shop which is um, a pretty massive waste of his talent and I was at the end of basically four hunting seasons back to back um, with a pocket full of tip money and not a lot of motivation to get another job for a while so we were basically living it up in Kelowna doing nothing and I'm sure (laughs) Jim was like man I have gotta figure out something for my son to to do and he came up with the concept of the professionals while we were living there. So Jim basically sent the, I was like a 2A4 piece of paper concept to Brandon, um, who read it, thought about it for a week, and then basically turned around to me and said, Mate, I'm going home to start this. Um, and then two weeks later, I followed him back to Vancouver Island and we lived in the guest house slash edit suite there. Um, while he worked on the professionals I picked up a camera and started filming with Jim and in all of our time off we would sit down and, and you know research cameras and watch movies and um, TV shows and try and figure out things so while Bran was sort of figuring out the editing and the and the technical camera stuff I was sort of his guinea pig in the field filming with Jim trying to figure out how it was going to look and how we were going to do it so you know, starting off, literally my introduction into cameras was in Saskatchewan. I got stuck in a northern camp. It was 30 below. I didn't have the right clothing or gear. I had a camera thrust in my hands, and the next day I went out filming. So I just sat in my room that night and pushed every button on the camera Let's to see what, what it what did. It yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, in those days we're still filming with HDV tapes. Yeah. And, um, you know, figured out that you had to stick all the batteries down the front of your jacket to keep them warm. Being there. Um, yeah and just started filming out of a blind and I don't think I got any usable footage for that whole season but once I got to the end of that then it was straight into it with Jim I think my first international was Jim was in Africa I think me, um, I think my first ever well, it was Eva's first trip to Africa too it was her first hunt I've seen that so, footage yeah, so you, did, seen did you take yeah. that? is
1: that your footage? yeah that's all mine <laughs> right. yeah,
2: so her first hunt she shot a warthog I think Um, And at that point, me and Eva uh, became really good friends as well because she was doing something for the first time as well. So we were both sort of newbies on the block, if you like, and learning together. So um, I was there filming. She was there um, hunting for the first time. And that was a lot of fun. And then Louise, uh, Jim's wife, was there as well. at the end of that sort of South African safari they went home and I think my first real one that I filmed with Jim was just him and I was actually we did a we darted a black rhino. Um which yeah, for those listeners who don't know, black rhinos are kinda of like their little angry cousin in the rhino family. They're not they're particularly cantankerous and particularly the ones that have been darted a few times, so they figure that out and they don't particularly enjoy it very much, I don't think. No. So <laughs> that to precede that hunt, they would give you basically a waiver that said, explained that this animal's worth close to a million dollars and we're not actually going to shoot it because it's worth uh, more to us <laughs> than you are kind of waiver. <laughs> so sign on the dotted line and then you got to sneak up and Jim was using a bow with a um, dart on the end of it. So we literally snuck up and shot this black rhino on the ass with a bow and for whatever reason the charge didn't go off properly Um, so he didn't actually get a dose he just spun around highly agitated Um, and there was three of us sitting there hiding behind some like literally two sticks and they haven't got the best eyesight it was just sort of early in the morning and I distinctly remember the rhino standing there looking at us and then looking at a bush next to us trying to figure out which thing it was going to deal to and thankfully it decided to kicked the shit out of the bush so it ran it over and tore it out of the ground and stomped on it and then ran off um, which was very frightening Uh, and then once we regrouped, we had to do it all again now we had to sneak up on a rhino that was already very agitated and expecting somebody to sneak up on it so it was a that was sort of my first ever filming under pressure I guess with Jim and I still remember him critiquing my footage afterwards. It was, you know, he's, he's, <laughs> you've met Jim, it's you? pretty,
1: yeah. I was um, at a filming where in a, in um, Germany, and he he was there just a couple of weeks ago, actually. Um, oh, good. So yeah, but that's that's a high pressure situation for what is pretty early in your serious filming career.
2: <laughs> yeah, and from there I never really looked back. Once I sort of go over that. Heard all that. From there we went to Uganda and then uh we're back in the country for a wee while and this is going back a few years now, but you know, I from that point on was travelling anywhere between two hundred and eighty and three hundred days a year. That's not for close to five years. Is
1: that that's you when you say travel you mean you're completely out of the country and you're filming stuff?
2: Yep. So either out of the country filming or in the Yukon Northern BC or Saskatchewan in one of Jim's outfitting territories filming. So um, it was 300 days a year hunting or traveling. So your travel days were counted in that, but it meant that essentially hunting all the time. And I would take a month and go home back to New Zealand and anything that was left over was um, sort of days in between picking up visas and and regrouping. Wow, that's... That's a lot it, of time. It's no. a, it's a
1: hard. Uh, you know, a lot of people. I don't think we're not. We're nowhere near as bad as that. But it, it's a hard lifestyle, and I think a lot of people from the outside looking in don't appreciate it, it always looks awesome you're you're a camera guy because they see the best bits you're in cool countries all the time and it just looks awesome but when you put it like that and you're away from home it basically means that's your 100 percent your entire life there's no stuff that you can do at home or any kind of normality or regular uh, regular things that you can do because you're always on the road and it it can never last forever
2: i don't think that no, and I was, you know, it took me a, a wee while to figure that out. I mean, I was young, right? So at that stage, It doesn't matter. I was what young, you're that age, single, didn't care. And for me, like a big driver for me was travel and experiencing new things. So I couldn't have had a better job, and I couldn't have had a better mentor in Jim, and and certainly probably Brandlin as well. Who um, I owe him a lot for sort of unlocking a lot of the more creative parts of my personality. Uh, So over that period of time, I was literally absorbing it like a sponge. After a year of doing it, I figured out that it wasn't sustainable. Um, And if you look at the pattern of cameramen that have served with Jim, there's a period before you get burnt out. Um, And that's just the way. He's superhuman in the fact that he can continue to do that long term. There's not many people on the planet who can go and hunt 300 days of the year like Jim hunts and keep it up for a long period of time. Um, and as I said before, like all of the nice sort of, you know, on the back of the truck safaris were already done and dusted. I was, you know, in the jungles of Congo for three, four weeks of the time. Was that hunting bongo? Or? You know, yeah, we did, what did we do in the Congo? We did bongo, we did a dwarf forest, uh, the buffalo. buffalo
1: yeah. Giant forest uh, hog?
2: Not in the Congo. He shot one in Ethiopia with Todd Bisseton, his other cameraman. Um, but what else did we get there? Uh, oh, a few different dikers in yeah. the Congo. And it was – the Congo too, we were one of the first hunting parties to go through there, oh, I think it was in like 40 years. So it was all pretty new and scary. The previous group that had been through there ended up getting arrested. Oh, right. So it was all – quite new um, and let's just say rustic the hunting was awesome but it's it's, it's a hard feeling to explain like you, you don't really notice it consciously but when you get on the plane and you take off and you're on your way back to Vancouver there's just this massive sense of sort of relief um, knowing that you've made it through you're you're sort of on a knife edge the whole time you don't know who you're going to run into or you're going to come around the corner and there's going to be a a roadblock or you're going to you know something's going to happen to somebody in the middle of nowhere and you know there's a lot of stuff that can happen I mean that same guide um, Andre the very next hunt uh, got gored by a dwarf forest buffalo and he spent it was a a long period of time in a dirt floor clinic with half his guts hanging out waiting for rescue like it's I mean he's one of the toughest humans I've ever met he survived that he had his sort of his voice throat ripped out and his guts ripped out and he survived it and was at SCI the following year like he's a wow a true champion no. <laughs> no. actually on that on that hunt funnily enough he had some kind of parasite in his head and uh <laughs> as you do anyone's anyone's been to sort of deep dark Africa, parasites are just something you learn to make jokes about but actually scare the living daylights out of you but he'd get up in the morning and he he had something in his head that was tracking across his forehead so he, he'd have a red line across his forehead and then it would break the skin and come out for a little bit of a drink and then dissipate <laughs> hey, uh, back into his head. <laughs> so every disgusting. morning he had, <laughs> he had like these red trails across his forehead and it became like a, like Jim thought it was hilarious so we'd film it every morning and see what andre's parasite had been up to during the night and it just didn't even phase him no like no we we shot a buffalo and it ran out into this by with big sort of open water patch in the middle of the congo which is you know two feet deep mud on the bottom hot stagnant water in africa like you you generally avoid that like full of bad play. shit
1: that you don't want to catch
2: and I like literally, we'd only just got up to this to the edge. And I turn around, I'm filming Jim, And next minute, I turn around, and Andre's down to his undies and he's off into the water to go and get it right. Like, just tough, tough dude. Mm.
1: There's, no, there's not that many people like that anymore.
2: Yeah, he was a you know, I'd hopefully see him at SCI. A little bit of luck, he might be there. I always enjoy catching up with him. But it, we're in a logging camp in the middle of nowhere that no one had been at for, for years and there was a, like the roads were dead straight but they were overgrown so he had rigged up, it was three machetes, blades riveted together on a, on, a, on a rack on the side of his Hilux so he had it tied to the top of the high rack down to the bottom and to clear the roads he'd just drive at 100 kilometres an hour down one side of the road with the blades out one side and then he'd turn around and drive back. And then he'd have his trackers on the top with machetes cutting anything that was long. So the end result is he had these perfectly square roads, like a tunnel that would just go for kilometres and kilometres in one direction through the jungle. And one <laughs> one morning we we're, were hooning along. It was dark and we are just sort of getting there. And there was a bit of noise and the guys on the roof started tapping and on the back started tapping on the roof so we slowed down and this silverback gorilla came out of the trees out of the trees stood up in front of the truck which was just coming to a stop made a fist with his hands and pounded on the bottom of the truck and screamed through the windscreen like held onto the front of the bull bar and screamed through the windscreen with just absolute disdain and anger and then walked off into the trees you know, little things like that. It's, you can't you know, buy that experience. You probably I mean,
0: woke him up. He was probably yeah. having a nap near the side of the road, and you woke him up.
2: Woke him up? I was half asleep. <laughs> the first thing Jim says to you, of course, is did you get that on camera? It's like, what do you mean did I get that on camera? We're driving down the road in the dark. <laughs> no, I didn't get that on camera.
1: What an incredible experience, though. It's those, it's those little things that you maybe – you don't think about for a little while and then you have a conversation like you're having today with us and uh, you're describing it and it's uh it it is incredible it, those and it's not even when you're doing sort of the main activity that the, that you're there to film it's all the little things that that make up the journey and adventure that is the reason oh, that I love going to the you know place. I've never done anything in sort of central Africa. A lot of stuff in southern the southern part of Africa, but I would love to go into to central Africa a bit more. The only, the only thing is, and you were alluding to earlier, is that a lot of those countries are quite dangerous, and you're certainly on edge the most of the time you're there. But you get to see and experience animal encounters that you can't anywhere
2: else in the world. Yeah, I was incredibly fortunate and I'm very grateful for the opportunity that, you know, Jim and gave me really. I mean, at the time I was probably young and a little bit ignorant and didn't really understand fully the opportunity that I was being given. I, I certainly figured it out after a couple of years when I started to talking to, you know, when I was doing a little bit of guiding or filming in hunting camps when, you know, guys were talking about going hunting here. Oh yeah, I've been there a couple of times. Yeah. Um it, it sort of dawned on me that I was pretty lucky to get to do what I was doing. And in all fairness, I mean Jim probably deserves another plug here. Um I don't think I would travel to a lot of those countries without him. He is a very perceptive and um you always felt safe with him. He would smell bullshit. A mile off um, he has a very uh, I don't know the best way to describe it but no one would get away with anything and he would pick up on things very quickly and if we were in dangerous situations he had a, a an uncanny knack of being able to diffuse them um, with humor and just talking to these guys like you one minute you'd be having guys pointing machine guns in your face and Getting aggressive, and it was situation was going sideways. And two minutes later, he'd have them laughing and giggling and wanting to be on camera. What um, it was, yeah. What what was
1: the what was the most frightening situation that you got yourself in where you thought, shit, this could really go wrong? I mean, human or human or animal.
2: Um, <laughs> there's a few to choose from. <laughs> rattle uh, through, throw, rattle through as many as you wise, like. <laughs> animal wise is there was a few tight scenarios with with bears i guess um <clears throat> had a few in the yukon um some with jim some during my guiding guiding career that could have very easily gone the other way um bears are a funny thing they're a once you get inside particularly grizzly bears once you get inside their bubble it's a it's a whole whole different ball game so i could talk about bears till the cows come home um internationally like more sort of adventurous uh that dwarf forest buffalo and the congo was a bit dodgy
1: they're supposed um, to be very aggr- aggr- i have no experience of them i've seen lots of cape buffalo but i've I, I hear from from what I've read is that the the forest buffalo are supposed to be even more, just a bit like black rhino. Wake up angry in the
2: morning. They are, and I mean from a biological standpoint, um, this is probably way off and way above my pay grade to be making these kind of broad statements. But it's funny that things that live in the thick, dense jungle um, tend to be a little more cantankerous, in my experience. And I, my theory for that is they're always cornered. So if you corner an animal, no matter what it is, particularly if you, you know, you've wounded it or hurt it in any way, and it feels threatened, at that point they'll charge you. Um, I think because of the jungle so dense over there, um, you know, the, like the dwarf, the dwarf forest elephants are um, notoriously cantankerous as well. Um, had a couple of run-ins with them over the years. Uh, Cameroon, uh, Congo and then the dwarf forest buffalo again when they're in the trees like that in the thick dense jungle and it's hard to explain until you've been in it, it's very very thick and then there's vines that come down that sort of fill in all the gaps like talking to Andre after he got gored by the buffalo when that buffalo charged him and this is a guy who's a veteran of literally hundreds of um, Cape buffalo hunts in Mozambique so he's shot charging animals on a regular basis um, he said when that buffalo came it was a different experience in the fact that it brought the whole jungle with it so he couldn't actually see buffalo all he could see was just a wall of jungle and vines coming towards him so those ones are always a little bit on edge <clears throat> trying to think I think we had a bit of a dodgy time with a beer in Romania, um, from memory. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. The closest to you know really getting myself in the shit was probably in Nepal, and that was just purely based on the fact that my lungs keep filling up with fluid. Which uh, did you? Um, did,
1: did that happen to good. you when you were up at altitude? Did it?
2: Yeah, I got it bad. Oh, um, really. And it's it's a funny thing because I'd been at altitude before and never had a problem. Uh, Me and Brandon landed in Kathmandu. It was sort of towards the end of my filming career uh, with those guys and we filmed, uh, I think it was a four-part, ended up being a four-episode thing on the professionals um, in Nepal which basically stood as a proof of concept for the Uncharted series. Okay, so this was so, right
1: at that interface between prior to Uncharted exactly. starting, got you.
2: So it was the first time that we'd bought you know, two cameramen, so me and Brandlin, and we were focusing more on sort of story than ever. One of those episodes, I believe, was the first one that we aired, or Jim ever aired, that didn't actually have a kill shot on it. Um, at that time, that was unheard of on the outdoor channel. Yeah, it just didn't happen. Um, just didn't happen so it was sort of right at that interface Um, and on that trip me and Bran turned up in Kathmandu a week earlier than uh, Corey Knowlton was on that hunt as well Um, and Jim so we spent a week filming around Kathmandu and I got got a bad case of the traveller's tummy I guess it's easy to get uh, in Kathmandu yeah probably the worst case I've ever had Um, there's plenty of funny stories attached to that (laughs) Um, It certainly knocked me round, and then we flew uh, by helicopter to 10,000 feet to base camp. Yeah. And I don't know if that affected my overall constitution, but filming with Corey after blue sheep, and we were up, right up in sort of 15, 16, I think we even hit 17,000 feet one day um, hunting blue sheep. And yeah, it just sort of snuck up on me a little bit um and it, it's not a good feeling at all no. so i got quite sick and thankfully we jim got his sheep that day and we actually got to drop down to where we were hunting tar so they were slightly lower than sort of 10 twelve thousand feet and i sort of came right um so filmed with him for five six days down at that altitude And in the meantime, there was another group of hunters who were in a couple of catchments over from us, and they called the helicopter in for evac, and the helicopter actually clipped the bank and um, twisted up a rotor, and I don't know if it crashed, crash, but it certainly, certainly upset the system. So at that point, unbeknownst to us, even if I had got bad, there was no rescue available. So... Um, what it meant is I had to climb back out of where we were for ta- um, at Tar Camp and walk for three days and go over um, three different passes to get out. And, yeah, that was probably the worst three days I ever had <clears throat> um, in that filming career was, you know, I could barely get up the hill. And you know, as someone who's used to carrying all my camera gear and running in front, in front of everybody and filming and this kind of stuff, I dragged my ass out of there and all I could carry was the hill stick I was walking with. I was not in good shape. So it it's, uh, it's a probably fu- the scariest I've ever had.
1: It's a funny feeling. Um, uh, when I was in Nepal, uh, I think, no, not last year, year before, uh, probably in a very, because I don't think there's that many areas that you can hunt. It was the Dorpatan hunting reserve that we were in. So it probably wasn't all that far from where you were. Um but I had I was okay for the most part, but obviously I felt it. I think everybody feels the altitude, especially when you're up sort of above fourteen fifteen thousand feet. But I had one day that I just felt like death for half the day. if I hadn't had a job to do, there is no way I would have got out of my tent um yeah. just everything was sore and stiff in a weird way, like you'd f- slept funny all night and cracking headache, and it's just just
2: altitude, yeah, it knocks you around, and then once you start getting that polymery edema stuff. It's like if you ever had really bad case of bronchitis. So you've got fluid in your lungs and if you take a deep breath, all that fluid starts to bubble and crackle and it makes you cough. Mm. So on top of the fact that you're at altitude and it sort of feels like somebody's holding your back and with their hand over your mouth the whole time, you know, if you breathe in too much, then you just get into a, a really nasty sort of convulsive coughing fit, which – um, knocks you around and sort of makes your head pound even more, and um, it's yeah, just not a fun, fun experience to be part of.
1: It's uh it's a very very cool place to visit uh, and hunt and be up in the mountains. But obviously, you're speaking to us now, so you you got out in in one piece and alive.
2: Oh, I'd go back in a heartbeat. Yeah. I loved it there. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was. I I loved it as well. I'd 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 go back tomorrow actually if I had the opportunity to go and do some more work there. I'd I'd take it in a heartbeat
2: yeah that's a cool place but yeah as I said there's always things I mean even on that Nepal trip our guide uh, got me and Jim bluffed on that tar hunt and we couldn't you know you can go up hills that you can't come back down for anyone that's done any sort of walking or hunting in real steep terrain like you can get yourself in big trouble if you keep going up and get bluffed out and you can't come back down again and that happened to us on that tar hunt Um, so we were sort of on a ledge on a near vertical rock face and the guides were starting to panic Um, and they tried to climb us up over a sort of this lip that had a spring coming out of it and Jim went up first um, and they were sort of trying to boost him up and the whole wall came loose. It was a big chunk of rotten rock and Jim was very lucky that his guide basically took the weight of that boulder on his thigh which... um, he actually broke his leg. Oof. and managed to catch Jim, but I was behind them filming, and that I still distinctly remember the the bulk of that rock glancing the outside of my knee as it went past and over the over the cliff. So there was a few times like that there that um, you sort of look back on now and think, man, that could have ended a lot differently.
1: They have a funny the the Sherpas and the guides there. They have a. A funny view of danger because I did stuff there that I would never ever do in another country. But you kind of put your your faith in the fact that they do it all the time and they live and work in that environment. But yeah, they they definitely do things that in, in the Western world you would just be like, no, it's not worth the danger and level of risk.
2: Yeah, you you soon figure out that. Well, excuse me.
1: I know that you you said uh, it's a good job that we moved the podcast by a day because you've been recovering from man flu for the last few days, so you're excused.
2: Well, I was in in Mexico and I got the Mexican version. Oh, Sorry, Mexican man flu. That sounds even worse. Yeah, and then I got back to North America and I was starting to feel healthy and then I got the North American version, so (laughs) it's not a great start to show season, Um, but yeah.
1: Let's um, skip forward from there. So you said that was at the end of your uh, end of your filming career. So what was the well? What did you do next? And what was the the sort of the crunch that thought that made you think? Okay, I need to move on and do something else because we we all known you're very good friends with Branlon, and as you said, that was the the sort of the uh, the starting point that the starter of Uncharted, which ended up being and I think it's I think it's still going, but certainly the first season was. Uh, tremendous and and incredibly successful and a, and a beautiful piece of um, cinematography as well as storytelling in some awesome places around the world. So, uh, you know, I I, I would guess that you probably would have been involved in that if you were still filming.
2: Yeah. So right at that crux. So we did Nepal. And then I think the next trip was Congo. And then the next one on the books was Papua New Guinea, mm-hmm. which I think is the start of It uncharted. is, first so, episode, yeah. So from that point, that was the was best part of four and a half, five years running at that pace. And I was burnt out, to be honest with you. Um, I had a pretty serious decision to make. I've always had a pretty strong entrepreneurial sort of spirit within me Um, and I sort of got to that point where I thought okay I could jump on to this for another you know three or four years Um, but the filming is sort of not my real core passion I do enjoy filming and photography as sort of a a hobby now but it certainly wasn't my main driver and it wasn't getting me any closer to you know like at the start of this podcast my real passion lies in New Zealand and and seeing our game animals obtain a little bit more value than perhaps have been given right now so it wasn't getting me any closer to sort of what my core purpose really was um, and I just couldn't sustain that pace any longer you know real life things like having a girlfriend and um, you know you can't do that 300 a days away a year. no no I had a, a number of um, very understanding girlfriends along the way but just well, a number of not that many, <laughs> one, <laughs> two, um, who were very understanding up to a point, but it became pretty obvious to me that you know at some point that sacrifice just becomes a little bit too much. You either decide that you're going to be a you know a long term bachelor in this industry, or you you got to take some you know take a step back and acquire a few more things, a few of the things that you want in life before you can come back to it Mm -hmm. um, at that pace. So that's the decision I made. It was a very hard one. Um, It was, you know, particularly given how close I was and still am with Brandon and the rest of the Shockey family, it was was not an easy decision. Um, But at that point, it was a matter of trying to figure out what this – relatively extensive by that stage given the intensity of the learning curve but very random group of skills could possibly do um as a business yeah i was pretty sure that pretty unique though be an outfitter yeah very unique so i didn't really want to be an outfitter um at that stage anyway Uh, my little sister hannah Um, Had actually worked in a hunting camp in northern BC, the same one that I did, um, and worked there the same year that Curran worked there and wrangled there for the first year. So Hannah met Curran first, my little sister, and at some point during that period, she emailed me and said, Look, you need to meet this guy, Curran. You and him basically sound like the same broken record. Here's his email address. I'm sick of hearing about all your hairbrain ideas both of you because <laughs> they're basically the same. So why don't you guys start talking? So we did. Started sort of flicking emails back and forward. And we actually started um, our first company together without actually physically meeting in person.
1: No, that um, that is... We, that, wow. I just can't imagine doing that. <laughs> Not even having a chance to look the other dude in the face and... In person, when you start a company. <laughs> well, to be
2: fair, just as a caveat, at one stage at the Golden Moose Awards, sort of mid professionals, um, he was there at Shot Show the guests of some clients and he'd had a few whiskeys and we'd just won a bunch of awards so and it was open bar for us down the front in the VIP section so I'd certainly had a few whiskeys he randomly bowled up to me in the crowd and said g'day I'm Curran Island I'm Hannah's sister and I shook his hand <sighs> Okay. and then he vanished into the night so I had shook his hand I I had very hazy recollection of it Um, but to be fair we had actually met <laughs> all but, but briefly you know it was yeah, two or three years later, before we started having these conversations, and it it just felt like the right fit for us. I knew, you know, at his core, he was had very very similar values to what I had. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just decided to give it a crack. And Ultimate OE, the company that we run together now, was was what was born out of a number of different iterations of what we should do together. Um, but the idea of, you know, taking young Kiwis um, and giving them the opportunity to have a similar path to what I got in North America was sort of the basis of what we do.
1: I was saying this to Curran when we were driving around in New Zealand, is that even here, for young people who want to go into and and work in the outdoors, especially if they've got a passion for hunting, they go and become a gamekeeper or or maybe a stalker, but there isn't this um, idea about the possibilities of becoming a guide a hunting guide in other countries around the world and living a life and having the kind of experiences that we've just been talking about for an hour. They but don't exactly bring it up on careers day, do they? No, they don't. At school this <laughs> this was not no. something they mentioned to me. Um when they, when they looked at the kind of things that I enjoyed, I can't remember what they said I should do, but it sure as hell wasn't that, but they would have been the perfect fit. But that is what you, that is kind of the doors that you open as a as a company and a and a training outfit uh, specifically for young, for young kiwis and I think that's awesome I wish there was something like that here it's not that difficult to get into the uh, sort of the hunting industry here if it's something that you're passionate about because there is a fairly sort of regimented way now with training through colleges to go and become a gamekeeper you have to be very dedicated to it because it is very much a lifestyle choice more than anything else but like i say leaving our shores and doing something similar to that in other countries most people will never think of but that is what that is what you do and i think that's that's awesome
2: yeah and when we first started to be honest with you it's it was very similar. It was, um, there wasn't a lot of people going and doing what <coughs> me and Curran had done. Um, those original guys, I could probably name them all off, uh, who went to North America and, and had that experience <coughs> in my vintage. So the idea of, you know, when we pitched it to a lot of guys early on, um, our biggest thing was convincing people that it was real um, and it was a real opportunity. And there was a real... Gap there for guys that were leaving school or university that, you know, had our passion and our skill set and our drive to see the world and understand hunting on a bigger scale that weren't getting offered anything in terms of a, a gap year or a, a year away. So we did really fill that niche. Now, you know, eight years down the track, and particularly with social media, um, it certainly has become a much wider known potential path for your overseas adventure and you know that's a function of social media and a function of us sending probably over 200 yeah we are over 200 now young guys to Canada to work in the industry so that's had a marked effect both on those young men's lives and and young women's lives but also on sort of the overall landscape of what's possible in the hunting industry in New Zealand I think.
0: I was with one of your young young gentleman only a few weeks ago, up at Invermark. Oh yeah,
2: we, who was that? Right, oh, Invermark. So that would have been. Uh, uh, oh, that's a am Trying
0: to remember his it name now. The, it was the ginger guy. With I the can't beard. remember his name with the beard. Uh, oh, oh, what was his name now? Had it? You got three people there, I think.
2: Yeah, I think Invermark's one of our bigger ones. Hmm.
0: Well, he was having a good time, so he had he hadn't, yeah. I think it was he hadn't left the Glen. No. since he arrived he hadn't left the place. <laughs> I said are you interested yeah. in going to see anything else? He's like, nah, not really. This is <laughs> this is fine.
2: <laughs> oh, excellent. Yeah, well, that Scottish one's going really well. Um, this is a new thing for you the really the, happy the, with the Scottish side. It is. Side. So those boys are the uh, for lack of a better term, the guinea pigs. So um they they were the first um and it, we've been looking for another You know, experience similar to the Canadian one for a while and it was actually one of our um, original guys that we sent to Canada Stefan Hope who worked at Ray Forest um, who pointed it out to us that this was potentially a good opportunity to expand into Um, because I mean they, they on arrival they need to have a few foundational skills and understanding so they can hit the ground running um, and from the estate point of view, they like to know that uh, the guys we're sending them have been through an application process, some training, and we can sort of match them up with what they're looking for. So it is working um, really well. And it's, it's funny, the whole concept of it, we started off as a, you know, a gap year opportunity, but over the years we've come to realise that what we're really doing is um, sort of taking a New Zealand hunter who has lived in New Zealand and had the typical New Zealand hunting upbringing, you know, with animals, no seasons, no limits, all that kind of stuff, very little value put on our our game animals. Uh, Living in that bubble and growing up in that bubble to come to, say, North America or Scotland, just to see how the rest of the world does it and there's a bigger world in terms of game management and – and, and hunting than what they're used to at home so when they come back these young guys have a, a much sort of broader experience um, and broader view on how or where hunting sits in the modern world so for you
1: it's been it's a bit it's been an education program in a way that, that isn't yeah, being that isn't being offered in your home country which is i mean it's a very very long-term plan but incredibly valuable i think i've learned a lot from the experiences i've had from different different countries around the world just in terms of understanding of how how they hunt how they manage their game how they appreciate it what the cultural nuances are, and it i think it definitely makes you a more rounded person in understanding
2: yeah and it's, it's funny it is a long-term game and uh, to be honest we we sort of fell into it rather than planned it. I'd like to say this was our intention the whole way, but one of the byproducts of having those two hundred plus guys go through our program, spend, you know, one, two, three, some of them five, six years in Canada um guiding and being part of the industry. When they go home, they naturally become part of the hunting public, but also part of the the hunting industry in New Zealand. So we've had a, you know, an indirect hand in sort of shaping that next generation of those top tier guiding guys. You know, a lot of our guys work for different outfitters around the country. There's a number of our guys that have been through our program who have started their own outfits with a sort of a stronger free range undertone. Um, so it's it's really a nice feeling to, you know, it's the best part of my year is at the end of the hunting season is catching up with all these guys and and sort of, you know, when you talk to them pre-training, and then talk to them after their experience you know seeing that evolution that progression that they've come as a hunter and as a person to be honest with you mm. uh, it's a huge learning opportunity for them
1: what's incredible to me from the this the conversation that we've been having is you started off telling us about what you what you felt was was your passion which was well you you were studying game management and felt that, that That didn't really exist in a form that interested you in your home country, but what you've, the journey that you've gone through and what you're doing now, you've kind of come full circle, and you are uh, beginning to achieve what you initially wanted to do as the twenty year old version of yourself.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and that's part of you know the the educated hunter thing, the podcast that Karen and I started is just trying to. Build up a little bit of a fraternity and audience outside of our core group of Ultimate OE old boys and girls, um, to sort of, you know, try and hit that little bit of momentum. Um, and we've got some other ideas that hopefully will come to fruition in the in the not too distant future that will continue to try and push that movement and that idea of putting value on our game animals um, a little bit further. But you're right, it has come full circle. It's funny how life. Uh, does that to you sometimes I
1: think it only does that to you I think if you keep pushing in the direction that's that's true to what you're truly passionate about I mean from the beginning of the story it seems like a very roundabout way to become a cameraman but you can see how that whole building block of experience has led you um, to where you are now
2: yeah and from the hunting perspective like I got to be a fly on the wall a client a passenger on so many different hunts around the world that you know understanding what is good guiding what is bad guiding you know understanding what is good game management what is bad game management uh, what is good outfitting what is bad outfitting um, from around the world just by getting to go on a a huge number of hunts like I forget now but it's probably in the high 20s in terms of the number of countries that I've hunted in and a lot of them I went back to numerous times.
0: I'm sure you'd have a bit more to say to your lecturer now. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's a good point, actually.
2: <laughs> yeah, I actually think of her every so often. I mean, she meant – like, the thing is, she meant well, yeah. right? And there's one thing that I've learned over the years, and particular. I mean, I live in Vancouver. It is, you know, the hub of, dare I say it, anti-hunting in, in Canada. Um, this is where the anti-grizzly bear, banned grizzly bear hunting stuff starts. Yeah. I mean – Two blocks up the road, I was walking past Patagonia the other day, and they had the the group that's largely responsible for um, the banning of the grizzly bear hunting at their front door giving out pamphlets. Hmm. Um, So I'm right in the sort of the heart of it here. And what that's taught me, and over the years, is having empathy for those who don't hunt and don't understand it, because at the end of the day when you have these conversations there's one thing that I always try and do and try and do when I haven't had too many beers but try and do um, is have conversations with people about hunting and and where their sort of perceptions of hunting come from and a lot of the time it's it's subconscious propaganda that has been fed to them their whole lives and they've never experienced or talked to anyone who's actually hunted. So yeah. their opinion of hunting and their, um, their uh, I guess, their negative reaction to hunting actually comes from the right place, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. They're often doing it because they believe it's right um, and, they, and they haven't got any other information to con- contradict that. Uh, so having a huge amount of empathy for those people I think is something that hunters need to get better at. Um, and it, it's funny, the movement that's sort of happening here, there seems to be a movement, you know, the, the likes of, you know, the Joe Rogan podcast and yep. um, guys like Cam Haynes and uh, even Steve Renella now being on Netflix has had a massive effect here in terms of generally people seeing hunting in a different light and it moves you know, it more into the mainstream
1: ago. doesn't it it's a yeah, mainstream where, where it's becoming more slightly more commonplace whereas before you'd have to go and seek it out if you were specifically interested in it but like you said now it's on netflix whether you're interested in it or not the thumbnail's going to come up and you might at least be intrigued
2: yeah and i think steve's a, a great ambassador for the right kind of hunting he He's very well read, very well spoken, and delivers a a very clean and concise version of hunting that I think um, shows us in a positive light. Um, These days, you know, five years ago, if the hunting subject came up, someone bowled up to me and said, I heard you're a hunter, it was often quite aggressive and negative. Now, when people broach that conversation, they are uh, coming from a place of genuine um, curiosity, like they've got to the point where they understand that there's probably more to the story than they originally would have thought. So that's a positive.
1: That's good. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm not sure whether we're quite uh there yet here in this country, but certainly there are inroads being made and it, it is all about uh just making it making it relatable and more commonplace and, and mainstream so it's not something that people are surprised to see. Or hear about, but I mean, we we have it on our net, even UK Netflix here. Um, Meat eater, which has been a great thing to see. How know? many seasons? I think it's three there's seasons. Quite a few seasons. Quite a few, on few seasons on Netflix. Yeah, there's been um, yeah. there was a short stalking docu- documentary on the BBC um, of all channels maybe six months ago. Uh, chefs are increasingly cooking with game. We always get knocked back a few steps, I think, in terms of positive progress with something negative that comes out, whether it be a legal persecution or some normally celebrity with an axe to grind and just because they don't particularly like some form of hunting. Because they have profile, it, it knocks a lot of very good, honest progress uh, back quite a bit, but we, have, you have to keep um, pushing on in, in the kind of direction that you've been highlighting there.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's funny The in a way, and this is going to sound a little bit weird, but I, I, I kind of envy the extreme anti-hunters in a way and the fact that it's so easy for them to get traction like yeah. that. I mean, all they need to do is strike a nerve on the emotional side with people who don't understand hunting and they get such massive pickup, you know, a headline of, you know, rich Texan shoots endangered black rhino mm-hmm. for fun. You know, you, you put that on any tabloid or on the internet, it's the ultimate clickbait. People are going to click on it and react in an emotional way. Yeah. It's inflammatory. And every paper wants easy. to run the story. Absolutely, because it's just—it's going to get readers, it's going to get clicks, it's going to get traffic. Like the people who put that up there don't actually care about a hunting or b the black rhino. They don't give a shit. They're doing it to get people to react, and it's very easy to get people to react when they are emotionally connected to an animal, wrongly or rightly. That you know they've been brought up to see. You know they've watched the Lion King, and that's their entire biological understanding of how it works in Africa so when you've got somebody shooting a lion you know they their their first response is an emotional one and they get quite angry quite quickly without any sort of um, real pretext to what the real story may or may not be
1: emotional decision making when it comes to wildlife management anywhere in the world is a very poor way to make decisions but unfortunately it does seem to be uh, more and more commonplace that we see things being done at a governmental level, grizzly bear hunting in BC uh, being one of them, and there are a couple of other instances around the world where decisions have been made essentially uh, based on the emotional reaction of the general public rather than hard science, which is a, a very dangerous precedent to be set, and hopefully something that the hunting community around the world needs to, that will work hard to address where and convince people that we need to make our decisions based on the science and what we actually know rather than what you don't like
2: yeah and i think all of us as hunters you know whether it be you're in a position of where we can make media that portrays hunting in a correct way that educates people a bit more or it's simply grassroots level where you're having conversations with people who don't hunt. Um, I think we've all got a responsibility to um, portray it in an accurate form. I think we've been guilty a lot of the time as hunters when somebody challenges, challenges us about it um, to react in a very um, emotional, sort of angry, I'll do it because I want to do it and you can't tell me what to do type manner. I think now um, that doesn't really fly. You have to, as I say, have empathy and explain you know take the time to really explain what makes you tick and why you do what you do because everybody's very different
1: yeah but you need to have a reason i think even within yourselves there needs to be you need to have a clear thought out reason as to why you know why you're doing what you're doing Uh, because if you can't explain it to yourself you've got no chance of being able to explain it to anybody else
2: yeah and i it's funny, because hunting, just like anything, right? You've got people who probably hunt for the wrong reasons. I guarantee that exists. A hundred percent, like and anything the in that, life. Yeah. yeah, and they're the ones who tend to gather most of the spotlight, and they're the ones that are going to come out and say something stupid um, that everybody's going to latch onto. Uh, I think the one, all of us in sort of the middle ground that tend to have traditionally sort of kept to ourselves and done what we've done and been very comfortable, we need to sort of step up and let everybody know that. There, just like anything there's extreme polar opposite or polars and and hunting itself
1: mm. well i mean a, a good point uh to to wrap up on which kind of reinforces what you're saying there and you mentioned it already is your your podcast which is doing just that it's having conversations very much like the conversation that the three of us have been uh having today just about life experiences and hunting and just having the good chat how has podcasting been for you because you you must be were you the first out of new
0: zealand first hunting podcast out of new zealand
2: uh i don't actually know i think there was one before us i don't know if he's still going or not um i think he was probably a little bit before his time uh, before the podcasting time to be honest it's only just sort of gaining traction as a uh, form of media in new zealand like it's not a you know we're way ahead of where New Zealand is here in North America in terms of people listening to podcasts. So we sort of got into it because we figured that was going to be a trend that was going to move forward and it was going to be a good way to reach um, an audience in New Zealand. Um, Yeah, it's been different for me, to be honest. Um, It's not a natural thing for, believe it or not, listening to me with my verbal diarrhea on here, um, you would think, but it's not a natural thing to talk about oneself. In um, a long form media in terms of being a Kiwi and I'm one one version of that but Curran, my business partner is another version like the last thing that he would have done or wanted to do 10 years ago is um, sit in front of a microphone and have a, you know talk about himself and ask questions um, so it has been a bit of a baptism of fire we are trying to get better at what we do and we're sort of at the moment to be honest with you caught in a sort of a we've got a, a sort of a base New Zealand audience and then of course just by the nature of who we talk to and where I live and um, you guys as well, um, we've got quite a big standing international audience so trying to decide whether we sort of double down on the New Zealand specific topics and people or we try and um, keep it sort of New Zealand and international um, we're not too sure which way to go but uh, we'll get through another year and see where we end up.
1: Well I, I, I enjoy them, It's uh, your, the podcast sits in my podcast list so, uh, just, I, so I think so you've just got to U- keep
0: doing what you're doing Your UK listeners are uh, in Scotland, they're from us Are we, are we <laughs> claiming Perfect. though? Are we yeah, claiming. We we're claiming that <laughs> <ones?
2: laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know you, you'd see our analytics and you'd be like oh wow, okay, so you really are just starting versus you guys who are um all over the place just it's just time it's time i think with
1: with most of these uh, we we've often say to people that you can listen to the the podcast stats you know from the 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 providers of um, the the podcast hosting platforms and most podcasts don't get beyond 30 that's that's i think i told Curran that when i um when i was with him when we recorded a show when i was in new zealand i said that you know 30 is the kind of golden standard to get past because if you can get past 30 there's a good chance that you'll manage to carry on growing
0: in listenership and make it a sort of a viable platform but i think
2: you definitely did current text me straight away did he seven gotta get to 30
0: 70 percent of all podcasts only average about 120 listeners a month i think that's about right yeah it's way smaller than you think than you think uh, and it's only once you get into that sort of top thirty percent
1: that you're, you know, your numbers looking into the, yeah. the, the thousands. But the vast majority of podcasts that are on these
0: platforms is only, you know, a hundred people listening. Interesting, or less. But it's, well, we're it, above it, average. Good, yeah, good. It, it, it is funny though because you're saying an international audience, and you know, when we were looking at the stats, and we a new place pops up, and we had one. I think it must have been two years ago and uh, someone was listening in South Korea, and we just... North? Sh- no, no well, it was South it was Korea. Just, it yeah, wasn't North Korea. That place is shut down. Yeah, South, <laughs> um, South Korea. Korea, and we're like, oh, we got a listener in South Korea the following day. They emailed us.
2: No kidding. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: It was an expat. Oh. who had gone there. we we got a couple of Japanese <laughs> listeners now. We've got quite a few Japanese listeners now, strangely.
1: A lot of Kiwis, wow. which is great, so we uh, we always give a shout out um, to the folks in New Zealand and Australia. The, the Austral- I'm sure you'll be the same. I imagine you probably have uh, a good Australian component of your listenership as well, I would think.
2: Yeah, we do, actually. Yeah. G'day, Aussies. How are
1: you? Yeah. <laughs> Matt, it's been awesome to speak to you. I I would, we need to have a chat, hopefully face to face next time, because there's a whole heap of things that I'd like to talk to you more about. You know, particularly about New Zealand, which is, you know, what you said was the focus and main drive behind your the podcast, the podcasting that you're doing in terms of wildlife management and where you see the future we could have delved into the the tar issue which i know we we chatted about on on whatsapp and i actually preemptively not knowing that it was going to happen did discuss it a little bit with current when i was in new zealand and then the big tar issue came up in the months after that Uh, but hopefully at some point i'm sure in the not too distant future we're going to be in the same place at the same time so we can sit down have a beer and do a podcast face to face
2: Yeah, I'd really enjoy that. I mean, as I said, we're cooking up a few different ideas. We're always cooking up on ideas. I'd say maybe one out of a hundred actually make it to the floor. (laughs) That's um, the nature of it. The general theme of our ideas right now is certainly in and around creating that value around New Zealand animals and uh, a real um, long-term plan on how we can do that. Mm -hmm. So give us a couple of months. We might have something else a bit more juicy to talk to, talk about. And another thing too, which just as a little, uh, little tiddler, um, tiddler is actually spent the day filming with Brandon Shockey, uh, two days ago for the first time since, first time since I, well, probably since, yeah, since the Congo. So, um, him and I, uh, looking at working on a little side project in our own time, which will have something, something to do with hunting and, and, very relevant to a lot of the conversation that we've had today, so... Could you find the record yeah. button? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I
2: wasn't actually filming, believe it or not, oh, you the not, first time. I was at the pointy end. Oh. Um So, keep an eye on, I guess, my Instagram and Brandon's Instagram. There's a few little, I guess, threads that you could pick up there that are, as we move closer to pulling the trigger on it, um, but, you know, from one... Filming, well, one cameraman to another. It's, uh, uh, it could be. It's got the potential to be really cool. Cool.
1: Well, maybe maybe when we stop recording, you can tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, it it's been awesome to speak to you. I hope you have a great um, show season. Uh, my little puppy is up the stairs and he's starting to whine his head off for some reason because uh, Beth's gone off to the gym and abandoned us with the baby. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to have to go and see to him. I'm sure everybody's thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. I think um, uh, half our listeners are going to want to become cameramen after the yep. epic epic tales
0: and journeys and adventures oh that you've been telling everyone. And then you're going to have to set up an ultimate OE for, for c- Scottish people to do what... Yeah, yeah, the equivalent of what you do but for the, because for the Scots. It, it must be quite relatively easy because the way the visas work for everyone in North uh well the North Commonwealth. Uh, yeah, well yeah. a part of the Commonwealth, yeah.
2: Yep. I'd certainly look at it. If there are any young Scotsmen out there, let us know. If we've got the demand in Scotland, we can certainly think about it.
0: Yeah, uh, well maybe maybe in the UK there could be a demand, maybe not necessarily in Scotland, but in, in across the UK there there probably is a demand.
2: Absolutely we're always keen to help out i mean that's what drives us really is getting people around the world and sort of growing as people and growing your your hunting iq well
0: you've you've heard it here any any young young people then they just need to email us and then we'll put you in the right direction
2: <laughs> brace yourself <coughs>
0: <laughs> thanks a lot matt we'll speak to you soon
2: no worries guys thanks very much
0: and that's it for another two weeks. Hopefully, we'll get it out on time next time. I'm pretty sure we will. It's not the best start of the year that we managed to get the the, the second one of the year. I think out late. Is it two in a row? <laughs> two, two in a row. Damn me. But standards it, are slipping. The standards are slipping, but improvements are on the horizon as well. <laughs> so um, yeah, we're we're getting a whole new setup, like we said before. Like changes are happening to the podcast for the better, and uh, hopefully, they'll bring everyone a, a better experience well by the time we get back from the states we should have a bank of
1: podcasts ready to go i
0: I really yeah i'm so excited six months worth and especially if anyone anyone that listens has either lives in the united states um particularly in the areas we're going to or if you're from somewhere else in the world and you've been there shoot us some suggestions of what to go and see what to do uh, because it's better to get that kind of knowledge from people that are either there or have spent a bit of time there because um, I think knowledge on the ground is better than any guidebook or google page that you can come up with I think it's way better we're, we're actually spending a a little bit of time um, over there with uh, well long-term uh podcasts yeah, stuff, we are. so uh, that's really cool
1: And don't forget to enter the competition, which is already up, waiting for you to tag a friend on Facebook to win the latest edition of
0: the Hornady Reloading Manual. If you'd like to contact the show, then it is podcast at paceproductionsuk.com. It should be in the description as well. But if you'd like any more information, then it head over to our website, which is all the w's the dot or just Google the Pace Brothers. It's the first thing that comes up on the interweb. And uh, it's also almost the end of the, the shooting season in the UK. Sad times. I think we talk about it in the next show, actually. But uh, yeah, we do with Sam. Yeah, uh, is it, but yeah, it's almost the. But it, you know what? It's crazy though because you say it, it's sad, but then we're just we're majorly busy with shows and everything else, I know. and then it just comes again. I know it'll be here before we know it. August, August the
1: twelfth, which I, which yeah, this is exactly what we talk about with Sam in two yeah. weeks' time. Is when does the season kind of feel like it starts for you? Yeah, and for me, I said it's kind of you know August the twelfth, but
0: but we'll be in uh, we'll be in Norway on August the twenty twenty fourth, I think it is, yeah. um, because Lisa's getting married. Yes. So we'll be we'll be there.
1: One of my first questions was, and I'm sure she'll forgive me for this, this was the, is there anything to hunt in Norway
0: <laughs> around at that time of year? My first question was, was it an open bar? Because I don't think I can afford to go otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there with a hip flask. I'm hiding it from the, the IV people. drip. Yeah. Um, uh,
1: well, I think that's us. Next time you'll hear from us, we'll be sat down with Sam Thompson. For three hours three and, and a half hours <laughs> i was thinking when we finished that podcast whether we should break it up no no we just we're we'll just fire it out.
0: one one go because that's about two three days of commuting for people exactly you can just stop and then pick it up where you're where you it's left so off. varied it, yeah.
1: it might as well be through almost three podcasts in terms of variation of
0: conversation when we first started the podcast we we used to split up like the two hour ones uh but then when we f- yeah, when we start getting feedback from people, and, and often when there'd be a three-hour one, people would save them for long journeys. So yeah. it made no sense to break them up then. So.
1: And also, a lot of people have asked to have Sam back on the show.
0: It's it's true. I mean, he was the first one last year on the show, yeah. and he hasn't been on since. I don't think. No, no, he hasn't. He hasn't been on since, and the feedback we got from the last show was pretty damn good. Yeah, bring him on again. Bring so now we again. brought him back on again. A year, and you've almost got three a hours. year to the day. Yeah. he came right back on. So I'm looking forward to. Um, getting that out the door for everybody to listen to.